From the University of Manchester's Jodrell Bank Observatory, we present... The Jodcast, your indispensable guide to astronomy every month. With Stuart Lowe, Nick Rattenbury and David Alt. The Jodcast, February issue... Hi there, and welcome to the February issue of the Jodcast. We hope you enjoyed the January issue. Certainly all the feedback we've got from it has been mostly positive. Uh, coming up on this month's show, we have Professor Jerry Gilmore of the University of Cambridge explaining to us all about Gaia, and also why he said this. The biggest thing we will see is the whole solar system oscillating like a jelly. We also have a report on the New Horizons satellite that was launched last month. We have Ask an Astronomer with Tim O'Brien and February's Night Sky with Ian Morrison. If you're wondering where Stuart and Nick are, well, that's a bit of a long story. Stuart is currently on holiday in New Zealand, having a fantastic time, and hopefully he's going to bring us back a sound tour of the Mount John Observatory. Uh, Nick is currently working at Jodrell Bank, and I just haven't been able to get up there to record any links with him, so you'll have to make do with me, I'm afraid. But first, the news, with Megan Argo. In the news this month, the Stardust Probe returns comet samples to the Earth, Smallest planet discovered outside our solar system is announced. The New Horizons mission takes off successfully on its way to Pluto, and the London Planetarium is set to close. On the 15th of January, the Stardust probe safely returned to the Earth after seven years in space and a journey of five billion kilometres. Launched on the 7th of February 1999, its purpose was to collect both interstellar dust and samples from the comet Vilt 2, which it did during close encounter in January 2004. The particles were collected in samples of aerogel, a superlight material arranged in blocks on large collector plates. After plunging back through the Earth's atmosphere early on the morning of 15th of January, the craft was collected from its landing site at the US Air Force Test and Training Range in Utah and flown to a clean room where the scientists could begin to examine the samples. The early results show some impressive findings. During a press conference shortly after the probe's return, Dr. Donald Brownlee, Stardust Principal Investigator, said that the results exceeded all of our grandest expectations. The Stardust at Home project is still asking for volunteers to help process images of the samples, so take a look at their website. You can find a link in our show notes. In a press release on the 25th of January, the discovery of a planet with a mass only five times that of the Earth was announced. The planet, orbiting a cool red dwarf star, almost 25,000 light-years away towards the centre of the galaxy, was discovered by a collaboration of astronomers using a network of telescopes throughout the Southern Hemisphere. They used a phenomenon known as microlensing, where the light from a distant star is deflected by the gravitational pull of an object in the foreground. To see one of these events, the background and foreground objects have to line up. Microlensing events are easy to detect if you look at enough stars. On average, you might expect to see one event per million stars each year. So to maximise their chances of seeing such events, these researchers look towards the galactic bulge, as this part of the sky has a high concentration of stars. During the microlensing event, light from a background star is deflected and the star appears to brighten for periods typically between 20 and 40 days. If the foreground lensing star has a planet orbiting it, then this causes additional brightening, albeit on shorter timescales, typically a few hours to a few days. By looking for this effect, the International Collaboration of Astronomers discovered this planet, known as Ogle 2005-BLG-390-LB, the smallest planet yet found outside our solar system. One of the researchers involved in the discovery was our very own Nick Rattenbury, so there will be more on this in a future show. 
Closer to home, on the 19th of January, the New Horizons probe, the first mission to Pluto, launched successfully from Cape Canaveral in Florida. Due to takeoff on the 17th, the launch was postponed once due to high winds and once due to a power cut at the Applied Physics Laboratory at Johns Hopkins University, the ground control centre for the craft's operations. Liftoff finally took place on the 19th of January at 2pm local time, 7pm Greenwich Mean Time, aboard an Atlas V launch vehicle. The piano-sized craft is the fastest ever launched, reaching the moon in a matter of hours, a distance which took the Apollo astronauts three days to cover. Following a gravitational assist from Jupiter in February 2007 to gain extra speed, New Horizons will finally reach Pluto in 2015. Rather than stopping to orbit, the craft will make its measurements as it passes by and continues on into the Kuiper Belt, hopefully studying other rocky objects as it goes. Whether you class Pluto as a planet or just a large Kuiper Belt object, this mission will provide us with far more detail than we have collected since Pluto was discovered. Keep listening for more on this mission later in the show. In related news, new observations of the Kuiper Belt object 2003-UB313, whose discovery was announced last summer by Mike Brown, Trad Trujillo and David Rabinowitz, have shown that it is in fact larger than Pluto, as was initially suspected. Professor Frank Bertoldi and colleagues from the University of Bonn and the Max Planck Institute for Radio Astronomy used the 30-metre IRAM telescope in the Sierra Nevada Mountains in Spain to measure the heat from UB313. From this, they calculated that the ob- object is 3,000 kilometres in diameter, about 700 kilometres more than Pluto. This news, announced on the 1st of February, will restart the debate over the planetary status of Pluto. A decision on this may be made in August, when the International Astronomical Union have their General Assembly in Prague. And finally, news was announced this week that the London Planetarium will close after 50 years showing audiences to the universe. According to managers at the Two Swords Group, who operate the planetarium, the reasons for the closure are that it is failing to attract enough visitors. The planetarium will become the London Auditorium this summer, with shows about celebrities replacing tours of the night sky. Many people have voiced their concern over this decision. Dr Brian May, musician and astronomer, expressed his disappointment, saying, The universe is full of wonders and beauty. It's a sad day when we lose London's theatre of the heavens. Here at Jodrellbank, we were sad to hear of this closure. Our own planetarium was closed in 2003, and we are still waiting for construction to start on replacement. Thank you, Megan. And now Stuart's interview with Professor Jerry Gilmore of the University of Cambridge. When Stuart met Jerry Gilmore, he started off by asking him, What exactly is Gaia? Gaia is a satellite that will be launched in five years' time. It takes video images of the sky with very high precision, very great, very stable positional measurements. Uh, So from this, we'll be able to measure very accurately the position of the billion brightest stars and galaxies in the sky. Now, you then say, well, why would I want to bother doing that? The uh, point is that from the change of the apparent position of a star with time, we can deduce its distance from us. And that's because we on the Earth are moving. We're moving around the sun in a year. And therefore, if we look at any star near us, we see that star apparently moving, when it's in fact us who are moving. We see every star in the sky moving in a little ellipse, the inverse of the Earth's orbit. And we know how big the Earth's orbit is. It's exactly twice our distance to the Sun. And so by comparing the angle of the size of a star's orbit with the actual size of the Earth's orbit, we can work how far away the star is. And that's the only way we can measure absolute distances in astronomy. And so Gaia will do this with exquisite precision for a billion objects. Okay, and this has been done um, a similar method for Hipparchos. 
That's right. The, the methodology of doing this from space, it's been a technique that's been applied from the ground for hundreds of years. You can't do it very accurately from the ground because the atmosphere gets in the way and blurs everything. But it, it's been done once before in space by a satellite called Aparkos, named after the Greek astronomer who first measured positions accurately. Uh, so we know the technique works. Uh, the difference between Aparkos and Gaia is that Aparkos measured uh, a few tens of thousands of stars accurately, and Gaia will measure a billion, and Gaia will do it about a thousand times more accurately than Aparkos did. Yeah. So we can see effectively a thousand times further away. And you'll also have coverage over a period of five or six years. Yes, that's right. Gaia will, uh, will scan the sky for about six years with its multicolor camera. So it's going to have multicolor imaging. And it's quite a big camera as well. It's because people will have digital cameras which have CCD chips in the back of them, which are, I guess are about a centimeter or so across. That's true. A, typical, a good quality digital camera might have a few million pixels, yep. uh, which is about 1,000 by 2,000 on, one, on the side. Uh, Gaia will have about 180 of, of those uh, cameras inside it. So it will be the equivalent of about 200 uh, digital cameras. Or a more useful um, scale perhaps is that the Hubble Space Telescope has four of these CCDs in it. So Gaia has about 50 times more uh, sensitive wide field imaging than the Hubble. And at the same resolution, so the same amount of detail on the sky. That's right, it's yes. It's the same wavelength range, same everything else. It's just 50 times more of it. So it's quite <laughs> impressive, really. Can you tell us a bit about the instrument itself and how it, how it works, how it brings all these things together? Okay, it's really just a video camera uh, with a, uh, a telescope bolted on the front of it. It's very, very simple. It's got no moving parts at all. Uh, the telescope's slightly unusual in that it's rectangular rather than round for engineering reasons to do with uh, how you build satellites. Uh, satellites don't tend to be round. They tend to be tubular, yeah. cylindrical. And uh, so the telescope's a rectangle. But apart from that, it's a perfectly normal telescope. The mirror's not very big. It's about one and a half metres by half a metre. And um, the really clever bit is the, uh, is the camera, which is recording all the data. Uh, so the, the satellite itself is very, very simple, uh, and it has to be simple because it has to be extremely stable because we're measuring tiny, tiny uh, distances and sizes to get the required precision. Sure. And so all this thing is is two video cameras bolted together, spinning around the sky for five years and being very carefully protected from anything that might shake them. So and it's going to be launched at a place called L2, which is on the opposite side of the Earth to the sun. That's right. There are two Lagrange points, as they're called. There are two places where the gravity uh, of the Earth and the gravity of the Sun exactly cancel out. Mm -hmm. And one is interior to us, called L1. Nearer to the Sun. Yeah. <laughs> Nearer to the Sun. And that's where the satellites that study the Sun go, because the Earth's out of the way then, and they can just see the Sun. There's nothing else there. And if you want to keep away from the Sun and the Earth, uh, then you go out to the far away one, which is L2. It's a few hundred, couple of hundred million kilometres outside the Earth. It's not terribly far away. But it's far enough away that you don't have to worry about the changing tides from the Earth or from the Moon messing you up and bouncing you around. And it is the place where all of the next generation astrophysics satellites are going. So the next generation space telescope, the James Webb, is going out there. The next generation micro background missions going out there and so on. And Planck. And, and Planck, like Planck and Herschel. Yeah. Right. It's quite easy to get to L2. 
as well, or relatively easy to get to L2. Yeah, it's an interesting point. It's just a, a freak of, of dynamics, is that um, normally if you want to put a satellite into an orbit, you have to spend vast amounts of rocket fuel to get it there. It means you need big rockets, and it means everything's very expensive. But it's a peculiar freak of getting to the Lagrange points, is that because they are dynamically stable, they're actually, in a, in a technical sense, they're minimum energy orbits. And that means you almost have to try not to fall into them and so the satellites almost all by themselves will fall into these orbits and so mm. it's an extremely easy place to put a satellite as it turns out and so you save a lot of money on rocket fuel yeah so if we took out some of the astronomy that um, guy is going to do as well as finding very accurate positions on on lots and lots of stars so you're saying a billion stars which is absolutely phenomenal um what other things will we be able to to get from this okay the the basic science that Guy is going to do is give us a 3D map of where stuff is in the Milky Way. But more interestingly, it's telling us how things are moving because we measure that position of everything every year for five years, and so we see everything moving. And there are two reasons why things move. The first reason it moves is because it's got planets around it, pulling it, yep. and so we'll find all the planets. And we expect to find twenty or 30,000 solar systems near the Earth, and that's great. Let's put that into context. We've found about 160 planets around the stars at the moment. That's right, yep. And so we'll be, there are a total, in the last 10 years or so, we've found about 150 in round numbers, yep. uh, so one a month, roughly. Yep. Uh, and we'll go up to the rate of 50 a day in finding these things. So yes, we'll find amazing, <coughs> amazing numbers. Amazing numbers, yep. As well as that, we'll find everything else that moves um, and changes. So we'll find uh, all the supernovae, all the exploding stars. So we'll be able to map out Cosmology. We'll, we'll be able to do local cosmology by finding all these things. So by local, you mean? Oh, out to our 10% of the universe. So it's out to redshifts of about 0.3. So it's right. quite far away in that sense. But yeah. um, it's, it's our... Astronomers tend to use these, these terms like local to mean something extremely big by normal everyday standards. Yeah, well, the interesting thing about redshift 0.3 is that that's the volume of the universe which is currently uh, expanding through the new inflation, through dark energy. And so it's an interesting part of the universe. If you look further away, you're looking so far back in time that dark energy hadn't had time to come into control. So the part of the universe we'll be able to map out is great because that's the part of the universe that will allow us to study the, the, the almost completely not understood dark energy. So it's a, it's yeah, a convenient so map. The dark energy is about 70% or so of the universe that we don't know about. That's right. The dark, dark energy is twenty-five percent or so. That's yeah, and, and in fact, it, the the big thing that Guy is going to do in a funny sort of way is actually allow us to to study in detail the parts of the universe that we can't see, even though it's entirely based on observations that stuff you can actually look at. You know, you'll be able to go out at night time and you'll be able to look up Guy on your online web uh, and go and observe for yourself the, the objects that Guy has just observed. But the interpretation of the Gaia data will, first of all, tell us about dark matter, mm -hmm. because it's dark matter that's pulling stars in their orbits. You know, if, yeah, if it weren't for dark, dark matter, matter knows about gravity and yeah, it makes dark, sense dark matter generates the gravity. It's dark matter that keeps the the sun in, or in in the Milky Way. If there weren't any dark matter holding us where we are, the sun would fly off into outer space. Mm -hmm. And so we we'll be able to find out how much dark matter there is and where it is by analysing the way things are moving. 
And similarly, by doing the same thing with the whole universe, we'll be able to find out how space-time is expanding. One of the uh, things that we all take for granted and don't think about very much is that we know that the, the sun bends light. It was the first proof of general relativity right. in 1919. Arthur Eddington. Arthur Eddington. That's right, Arthur Eddington, 1919. Uh, that effect is so large that even when you're looking uh, away from the sun, even when you're looking up in the nighttime, the, the mass of the sun is still bending the light that we see. So our whole it's a very part, small amount. It's a small amount by the standards of just looking, but it's a very large amount by the standards of Gaia. And so, in fact, the um, uh, a- average amount by which the, uh, the light from a distant star is bent on its way to the Earth is a thousand times larger than the Gaia measurement accuracy. And so, to a very good approximation, what Gaia is actually measuring is the general relativistic distortion of the solar system. Mm. And we have to measure that to exquisite precision and subtract it away before we can do anything else because yeah. it's the largest thing that we will see. The biggest thing we will see is the whole solar system oscillating like a jelly as the sun moves around. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's going to be an amazing, amazing project. Um, you, uh, you've got a whole pages and pages full of science objectives, things that will be done. And you're saying that we're going to, this is sort of going to be the cornerstone of astronomy for the next hundred years. Yeah, we're going to completely rewrite the astronomy books. The uh, the accuracy with which we're doing things and the scale on which we can now do things, is, it's a thousand times better than we've ever done before. And generally when you do something a thousand times better, you just forget about everything you knew beforehand and you just go straight on to the new stuff. Yep. And so we essentially are going to be completely recreating the science of astronomy. Well, that's a good thing. When, when does the launch happen? Uh, December 2011, five years away, and, and a year after that, you'll be able to look at the data in real time on your own private web. That sounds fantastic, and it sounds like people who are students now and who may be studying astronomy or thinking about studying astronomy, they'll be able to work on the data afterwards. The data yes. will go go free in real time. There's no, right, so no private ownership of the data. Well, there's going to be an awful lot of data. There's going to be a lot of it, so plenty for people to do, and it'll all go straight. You need more than a broadband connection, I think. <laughs> yeah, the, yeah the, the total database is, is huge. Uh, it, it's comparable to what's on Google now. But, uh, but it'll all be there and it'll all be free. So everybody who's interested will be able to do state-of-the-art research, and they'll be the first person to do it. Right, well, uh, I think we'll, we'll finish there. So thanks very much for talking to us. Um, and good luck. I hope the launch goes well. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks there to Stuart Lowe and Jerry Gilmore of the Institute of Astronomy in Cambridge. Now, last month, a satellite was launched called New Horizons, which is off on its way to Pluto as we speak. Hannah Thrall produced last month an article for us about this satellite and about Pluto, but unfortunately, we couldn't get it into the January issue. So here it is now in the February issue. About 5,913 million kilometres from the Sun lies the icy planet Pluto, one-fifth the size of the Earth, and with an orbit which lasts 248 and a half years, Pluto was not discovered until 1930, and we still know very little about it. Back in 1929, there are only eight known planets in the solar system, although Percival Lowell, the founder of the Lowell Observatory, believed that there was a ninth planet, which he referred to as Planet X. Lowell attempted to search for this new planet, based on the effect he had calculated it would have on the orbit of its closest neighbour, Neptune. Two searches had previously failed, so the observatory director at the time, Dr Vesto Slifer, employed the talented young observational astronomer Clive Tombaugh for the third search. Tombaugh took pictures of the night sky and plane of the solar system one or two weeks apart, and looked for anything that had moved against the background of stars. 
After 10 months, this systematic approach was successful and Pluto was discovered on the 18th of February 1930. The name Pluto comes from that of the Greek god of the underworld, and it was originally suggested by an 11-year-old girl from Oxford. Pluto has roughly twice the density of water, and is composed of a mixture of ice and rocky material. It has polar caps, which are covered in frost, but not of water ice, mostly of methane, and there are large, darker regions near the equator. As Pluto is so small and so far from the sun, it really is a very inhospitable place. The atmosphere is mostly molecular nitrogen, and is very thin, with a pressure of around 3 to 10 millionths the atmospheric pressure at the Earth's surface. The average temperature on Pluto is estimated to be a chilly minus 233 degrees centigrade. That's only about 40 degrees above absolute zero. Pluto is also one of only two planets which orbit on their side, Uranus being the other. To explain this, it is suggested that Pluto was knocked over by an impact in the past, which also created its moon, Charon. Charon was discovered by the American astronomer James Christie in 1978, and is named after the mythical boatman who ferries souls across the river Styx to Pluto for judgment. Its existence was confirmed in the 1980s, when there was a period of mutual eclipses seen from the Earth. As Charon passed in front of Pluto, astronomers were able to estimate Charon's size. It turned out to have approximately half the diameter of Pluto, making it the largest sized moon relative to its parent planet of any in the solar system. New measurements, taken during a stellar occultation last year, have enabled astronomers to accurately measure Charon's radius, which is now known to be between 603 and 606 kilometres. But Charon isn't Pluto's only moon. Last year, astronomers discovered two new objects orbiting a tiny frozen planet in images from the Hubble Space Telescope. Follow-up observations are planned for this coming February to confirm these discoveries, so we'll let you know what happens in a future show. Pluto and Charon, and the other moons of Pluto, are members of the Kuiper Belt, a collection of icy rocky objects residing beyond the orbit of Neptune. More than 1,000 Kuiper Belt objects have so far been discovered, but it is thought that there may be as many as 500,000 objects bigger than 20 miles across as yet undiscovered out there. Pluto is currently the only planet in our solar system not to have been visited by spacecraft from Earth, but that should all change very shortly. On the 17th of January, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft, which is a mission to explore Pluto, Charon and the Kuiper Belt, will take off from Cape Canaveral. Although this is an express mission, New Horizons will still take more than nine years to reach the icy planet, having a brief encounter in July 2015. New Horizons won't actually be stopping to orbit Pluto, though, as it would require too much fuel to slow the spacecraft down. During the flyby, New Horizons will be observing everything it can about the Pluto system, with seven scientific instruments selected to meet the mission's science goals. These goals are to investigate the nature and behaviour of Pluto's atmosphere and its interaction with the solar wind, as well as to map the planet's surface. New Horizons will also carry an instrument which will measure dust impacts on the spacecraft throughout this voyage. This was built by students at the University of Colorado. After the flyby, New Horizons will carry on out into the Kuiper Belt, having further encounters with other objects between 2016 and 2020. The total cost of this mission will be in the region of $650 million, so let's hope it doesn't get lost along the way. And remember to put a date in your diary for a meeting with Pluto in 2015. Thanks for that, Hannah. Now we hand you over to Nick for Ask an Astronomer. This is this month's instalment of Ask an Astronomer, where we ask common questions to Dr. Tim O'Brien of Jodrell Bank Observatory. Tim, thanks for coming along. I've got a list of, uh, of, of questions in front of me, and we'll start off with uh, an easy one, I suppose, which is um, uh, uh, one asked by many people who are perhaps not quite so familiar with the night sky. And the question is, what's that bright thing in the sky? So <laughs> <laughs> we do. I mean, it's funny. It's just, it sounds like a silly question, but we, we 
commonly get asked it. People um, ring up and, uh, and and say, "I've seen this thing in the sky. Could you let? Could you tell me what it is?" And of course, the problem is you have to find out information about where where they saw it, exactly where in the sky it was, what time they were looking uh, at the sky, and so on. More often than not. The, the classic answer to this to this question is that it was the planet Venus. Right. So, so you know, quite often the Venus, you know, Venus is a bright morning or evening star um, in the sky, and particularly when it's a really clear sky, which is you know unusual for this part of the world. Um, people look up and they see this incredibly bright thing in the sky, and they go, "My God, I've never seen anything like that before. What could that be?" I'll, I'll ring up Jodrell Bank. Must be something exciting. Some stars exploded, or or even maybe there's a UFO or something like that. And uh, no, it turns out to be Venus quite often. If that isn't the case, if it isn't Venus, then um, then we're sometimes talking about uh, fireballs, you know, from uh, meteorites, uh, which do, you know, occur relatively often. So people will see a bright object flashing across the sky, even fairly obviously burning up. Um, and that happens, you know, maybe a few times a year we get that sort of, that sort of call about a bright meteor. And this could happen any time during the year or is there specific times when it's more likely to see yeah i mean there are there are the classic um sort of periods in the year when you get the uh meteor showers or storms from the you know as the earth passes through a comet's tail um there are the, the classic ones that occur at various points but uh, and then you are going to get uh, you know more chance of, uh, of of seeing a bright fireball but in fact there is a level of these things all the time so I don't think they're necessarily always associated with those. The, the really bright ones that you occasionally get, I think, are, are, are a bit more random than that, in fact. So, uh, so yeah, that's that's another thing to watch out for. And that's interesting. We had one last year, I think it was, where it was spotted. We got several calls from the public over a period of the next day or two after it happened, and it went right from the south of England all the way up to um, to Merseyside. So it's a pretty obvious thing that sort of this this thing could sort of skated across the top of the UK and it was spotted by several people at different points as it went across. It must, have been, must have been spectacular. I've seen one or two on these nights when, you know, the Perseids or uh, a similar sort of meteor show has gone outside and sat in the back garden and looked up and that is quite, that is worth doing on, on, on a night like that, you know, spend half an hour outside and you will see quite a few of these shooting stars and occasionally that you'll see a spectacular one, but I've never seen a, a fireball like some of these people have described to us. So uh, I think you have to be quite lucky to spot them. Right. So the first, the first answer for people saying, "What's that bright thing in the sky I saw last night?" is probably Venus, and then probably a fireball, a meteorite hitting the atmosphere. Yeah. Anything else? Well, of course, there's the classic UFO question. UFOs, of course. <laughs> so um, little green men. Absolutely. So I mean, I often tell people that they have seen a UFO because in fact, <laughs> UFO stands for unidentified flying objects. So if they see something in the sky that apparently is flying and they don't know what it is, they haven't been able to identify it, then they have indeed seen a UFO. Uh, the question is whether they've seen a, a flying saucer or uh, yeah. some sort of alien spacecraft. And I think, you know, the likelihood is that that isn't the case. The likelihood is it's the uh, the, the, the 747 landing. Absolutely, uh, yeah, yeah. But of course, <laughs> right. you know, you have conversations with people and, and I've certainly spoken to quite a few people who've seen these things and it's difficult for us. We can't replicate in any way what they saw they, they saw what they saw they describe it and it's very hard for us to put a definitive answer on on what it was they saw you can just go through a, a series of, of likely possibilities and, and i think alien spacecraft is way down that list of likely possibilities <laughs> yeah, right. it's not right impossible it's not impossible but it's but it's but i think it's, it's it's unlikely so i think that's the usual answer to that one great okay so question two what's the most distant thing that the Lovell telescope has ever seen. 
Now, it depends what you mean by thing, of course. We sort of talk about this. We'll talk about two different things. There's, 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 there's a type of object called a quasar, which is uh, it comes from the, an acronym QSO, and that was quasi-stellar object. So it was an object that looked basically like a star, um, quite bright, looked like a star. It now turns out we know these things are actually not stars. They're at huge distances in the universe. They're actually galaxies in their own right, uh, and we believe they have a supermassive black hole at the centre. And as material falls into that black hole, that causes the, the region around it to become incredibly bright. And we see them across large distances across the universe. For astronomers, they're bright. So, the, I mean, they're, they're basically so far away that they look like stars. So although they're actually galaxies, they're so far away that this, the light is coming from the, the core of this galaxy. And they just end up looking like a point on the sky. So that's why they were called quasi-stellar objects. Um, now, the most distant um, one of these that we've looked at uh, recently um, actually goes by the exciting name of SDSS 0836 plus Z 0054. Wow, what um, a vocative name that is. <laughs> typical astronomy name there. Beautiful. Um, of course, the, you know, the point about that is there's so many objects in the sky that we couldn't give them all their own individual names because uh, we'd soon run out of those names. So they're generally named by their position on the sky. So the numbers in that name are just its coordinates on, on the sky. The SDSS bit is... Uh, stands for Sloan uh, Digital Sky Survey, which is a, a large survey of the sky that's being done at the moment. That object is a radio quasar, so it's one of these distant galaxies. It's very bright in radio waves, uh, and it actually lies at a distance. The way we, we talk about distances, we talk about the red shifts. So it's the shift um, towards the red part of the spectrum of the light due to the expansion of the universe, and that relates to the distance. And this one is at a red shift of 5.82. 5.82. <laughs> Which may or may not mean anything to you. Um, in terms, if you put that in some terms that maybe you get a better picture of, if you think about the age of the universe since the Big Bang, we think the universe is, assuming we are un best understanding of cosmology at the moment, the universe is something like 13.5 billion years old. So 13.5 million years old. And when we look at very distant objects, because light takes a certain amount of finite amount of time to travel, to us, we're actually looking back into time. The farther away you look, the farther back in time you're you're seeing. So when you talk about looking at a distant object like like the one we're we're talking about here, um, we're actually looking way back towards the beginning of the universe. And in this case, that redshift 5.82 is something like one billion years after the universe began. So it's about 13 and a half billion years old. And this is looking back all the way to one billion years after it began. So it's a very um, it's, it, it, it's an object which. Uh, was formed not long after the universe. That's right. So, so that's really the interest in it. We're not, you know, astronomers aren't, you know, there's a sort of machismo element of looking, you know, who can find the most distant thing. Um, but that's really not why we do it, to be honest. Um, what we're doing is we're trying to look back in time to see how objects formed. So if you're interested in seeing how the first stars and the first galaxies, how the universe behaved at those very early times, that's why you want to look at the most distant objects, really, because you're looking back at the earliest objects in the universe. So I think that was that actual those observations were done with, in fact, an array of radio telescopes all the way across Europe, of which the Jodrell Bank Telescope was part. So it was actually the Mark II Telescope at Jodrell Bank that, that took part in that observation just a few years ago. So these objects are accreting objects onto a supermassive black hole, like mm -hmm. a galaxy, for mm -hmm. instance, all fall into the uh, central black hole, mm -hmm. billions of light years away. Yeah. And... Because obviously, because the Lovell telescope is a radio telescope, these objects are emitting in radio waves. Mm -hmm. So you see it, yep. so to speak, in radio light. Yeah. How many of these things do we know? Well, at that sort of, um, 
I mean, there's a lot of quasars in gen in general. There are lots of quasars. At that, those sorts of redshifts, there's not very many. Um, we're talking about um, you know of order ten or so that are known that sort of level at that that distance. There's there's you know they're really quite a rare bunch. But that's because they're once you get them, although they're intrinsically very bright, once you put them at those really large distances, then in fact they the, they become quite faint and so hard harder to detect. In fact, so that so so. It's interesting because at some point there won't be any more of them. You yes. know, the farther away you look and the farther back in time you look, we're obviously going to go beyond the point at which these things are formed. So that's the other reason for pushing that back. You know, you're going to see more of them at certain times in the universe than at other times. So we try to understand the sort of history and the evolution of these objects through the through the history of the universe. So that, that's really the what's un, what underlies those studies. Now I should say that was that was talking about the most distant object. That's the most, you know, certainly one of the most distant individual objects we see. Um, the farthest back we can see is something called the cosmic microwave background radiation. Cosmic microwave background. Yeah, that's right. Yep, the CMB, the CMB. for short. <laughs> it's basically the, the fading glow of the Big Bang. So when the Big Bang happened um, 13 and a half billion years or so ago, the, the universe was very hot and it was very dense and it was expanding. And as it expanded, it cooled down and it became less dense. And if you, if you can imagine that at the early times, um, because the universe was so dense, it was basically opaque. So any light that there was, was was being absorbed and scattered by material. The universe was dense. It was like walking around in a fog. You can't see very far through a fog. But as the universe expanded, that fog thins out, and eventually you start to be able to see right through the fog and right the way across the universe in this case. Now, that time at which the universe became transparent was about um, 300,000 years or so after the Big Bang. That light that was emitted at that time, that was generated at that time by the universe when it became transparent, that light is still travelling through space now. Um, because the universe has expanded, that light, which started off as visible light, sort of orangey sort of colour, um, has been stretched out to longer wavelengths um, right down into the radio part of the spectrum. And that's what we now call this microwave background radiation. It's in the microwave part of the spectrum. So we still see, we can see now in radio light yeah. the cooling universe yeah yeah so that's that's um so the universe as a whole has cooled right down now that t the temperature of that radiation is only about three degrees above absolute zero so that's um 270 degrees below zero celsius um so it's incredible it's incredibly yeah it's, in it's incredibly incredibly cold but it started off at about 3000 degrees so it started off as a reasonably hot universe at the time it was emitted the universe has expanded, it's cooled down, and we see it now in the radio part of the spectrum. So, in fact, that radiation we see coming from everywhere, because the Big Bang, in fact, took place everywhere in the universe. Yes. Um, and so we look in any direction, we see that radiation coming towards us, left over from the Big Bang. We pick it up with our telescopes here, but interestingly enough, you can actually pick it up with a TV aerial, um, believe it or not. Really? Yeah, your own TV um, is a cosmic microwave background detector. Hey, if you were able to tune it to the channels between the normal TV transmissions, if you could get static on your TV, then a few percent of the the photons, the, the radio waves that produce that static on the screen that's not tuned to a channel, a few percent of the of, of those radio waves are actually from the from the Big Bang. They've been travelling for over 13, 13 billion, billion years. years. Yep. To get yep. to your TV. Yep. That's as static. Right. Yep. As static, unfortunately. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Brilliant. So our third question is, have you ever discovered a star? I guess uh, the answer to that is probably yes. And the reason I say that and the reason I say probably, so sort of, again, it's a, it's a question that, you know, 
it's it's interesting to try and answer because you've got to realize how many stars there are out there first of all i think that's the important thing in our galaxy alone in the milky way um there's probably a, a few hundred billion stars so a few a few hundred thousand million stars um now we haven't cataloged all the stars even in our own galaxy um so if you were to take a uh, a very deep image. If we take a big telescope, take a CCD camera or some sensitive detector on the on the on the on the telescope, and you were to take a long exposure image of that bit of sky, you will see some very faint stars, and it's likely um, that that some of those stars will not have been catalogued by any astronomer before, so they won't necessarily have a name. So they wouldn't um, so be in, in, in a, on an atlas or a map That's or right. a, a yeah. previously yeah. noted down. Yeah, it just really depends on it. You know, these stars will get catalogued when somebody does a survey of a patch of sky for whatever reason. It may be a very deep survey, in other words, a very long exposure that sees very faint objects on a small patch of sky. In which case, if you happen to point your telescope in that direction, yeah, sure enough, maybe somebody has catalogued all the ones in that direction. But because it takes a long time to do a survey of the whole sky, then it generally large scale surveys that cover a large part of the sky are not as deep. So in other words, they don't see as faint stars as, as these as a, as a smaller scale survey. So yeah, pointing your telescope in a random direction in the galaxy take a long enough exposure you're probably going to discover a star so i don't absolutely know if i've discovered a star i don't you know i don't actually care whether i've discovered a star right. or there are not. so many of them that's right that it's not not that valuable a thing to have done in that sense what's more important is you know what you understand about them and whether they're useful for <laughs> what anything. do you do with them yeah well thank you very much those are just three questions that we receive from uh, the public through the jodcast webpage and from visitors to georgia bank uh, observatory so it just remains for me to thank uh, Dr. Tim O'Brien for answering those questions, and we'll uh, be talking to you again next month, I'm sure, for the next edition of Jodcast with some more questions. Okay, thanks, Nick. Thanks, Nick and Tim. And if you have any questions for Tim O'Brien, email them via the Jodcast website, and you'll find that at www.jodcast.net. And now Ian Morrison tells us about what to look out for in the February night sky. February is probably one of the best months of the year to observe the heavens. Partly because, of course, it still gets dark quite early in the evening, so you don't have to stay up too late. But also because looking towards the south during February, in the mid-evening, we have one of the most beautiful skyscapes there is. Due south at about nine o'clock is the wonderful constellation Orion the Hunter. He has three stars tightly placed in a straight line that form his belt. Below that hangs the sword which if you've got binoculars, you might be able to see, contains a lovely red diffuse region. It's called the Orion Nebula, and it's a birthplace of stars. Orion's right shoulder is a very bright star called Betelgeuse. It's a very large star, and in fact, if you put it into our solar system, it would stretch all the way out to Jupiter. His left knee is the star Rigel. That's a blue-white star. It's about 50,000 times brighter than our sun and is one of the brightest stars in the sky. Orion is holding up a shield, a little arc of stars, against the onslaught of Taurus the bull, which is to his upper right. There's a bright red star there called Aldebaran, an orange-red star. It's in a cluster of stars that's called the Hyades, or it appears to be, because in fact, 
it's about half the distance of the Hyades cluster and moving southwards rather than eastwards as the Hyades themselves are. But again, that little triangle of stars with Aldebaran forming the eye is the head of Taurus the bull. If one keeps going in the same direction by about the same distance, you should see a fuzzy glow with your unaided eye and binoculars will show a wonderful cluster of stars called the Pleiades cluster, often called the Seven Sisters. In fact, there are about nine stars that you might see there and they're the Seven Sisters and their mum and dad. It's a young cluster of stars, one of the youngest that we know of, because stars are born not by themselves individually, but in groups. And so when we see them having been born, we get these clusters of stars, which gradually spread out into space. So once our own sun was part of a cluster, but of course we can't see that from here. Down to the lower left of Orion, following the three stars down to the left, you come to one of the brightest stars that we can see, in fact, the brightest star in the Northern Hemisphere called Sirius, the dog star. It's the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major. Up to the left of Orion, there are two relatively bright stars, Castor and Pollux, which are the heads of the heavenly twins. And down to their lower left, you'll actually see something quite bright. It's in the constellation of Cancer the Crab, where in fact, it's a pretty faint constellation. There's not much to see, except a rather nice little cluster of stars called the Beehive Cluster. But at this moment during February, very close to the Beehive Cluster is the planet Saturn. It was closest to us in the last week of January. So in fact, is about due south uh, around midnight or just before. And that's one of the two planets that you can see in the evening sky. The other planet is the planet Mars. Now that was closest to us last autumn. So it's now in fact moving away from us and is not as bright, but it's still in fact about the same brightness as the star Vega about the Earth magnitude. That is high in the southern sky after sunset and will be setting towards the west in the mid to late evening. And you may spot its rather nice reddish or salmon pink colour. There are two other planets that you can see. One is the planet Venus. This has just passed between the Earth and the Sun, so it wasn't visible for a, for a while. But you can now see it relatively low in the southeast before dawn. It's at about its brightest. It's about minus 4.6 magnitude. Now, sadly, this particular orbit of Venus is actually rather low in the sky. It's below the sun in what's called declination, which is sort of equivalent to latitude on Earth. And that means that it's never that high above the horizon. Sometimes we see it very high indeed, and it totally dominates the eastern sky before dawn or the western sky before sunset. But in fact, this time, although it's bright, it's not so high in the sky and it won't be quite so visible. We'll have rather fewer people ringing up to say, I saw this bright light in the sky, what was it? But nevertheless, you can see that if you look in the southeast before dawn. Now, the giant planet of our solar system is Jupiter. This is rising around one o'clock at the beginning of the month or around midnight, a bit later on, and is coming up in the sky. It's in the constellation of Virgo, and there aren't any other bright stars near there, 
So if you follow down to the lower left from Saturn, and obviously this has got to be in the middle of the night, you should see a bright object, which of course is Jupiter. On the other hand, if you get up early in the morning while it's still dark, then you should be able to see Jupiter in the south or, or, or the southwest. So there are Mars, Saturn, Jupiter and Venus, all basically visible in the sky during February. And towards the south, we have this wonderful skyscape centered on Orion. I do hope you go out and have a look just with your eyes or perhaps a pair of binoculars. Thanks, Ian. And that wraps it up for this issue of the Jodcast. Coming up next month, Helen Mason will be talking about SOHO, the Solar Observatory Satellite. We will hopefully have Stuart Lowe giving us a sound-seeing tour of the Mount John Observatory in New Zealand. Also, we will be interviewing the group from Jodrell Bank Observatory, which is writing a paper on the new 5.5 Earth mass planet that has been spotted in, in an extrasolar planetary system. Now, this is exciting because it's the lightest planet found to date orbiting a normal star. So we'll have an in-depth interview on that next month. And more questions answered for you from Dr. Tim O'Brien. So now it just remains for me to thank all our contributors, to Stuart Lowe and Nick Rattenbury, my co-hosts, to Hannah Thrall for her article on New Horizons, and Megan Argo for providing the news, to Tim O'Brien for answering your questions, and Ian Morrison for telling us what to look out for in the February night sky. And, of course, to you all for listening. Do keep your feedback coming in. We do appreciate and read all of it. So now it just remains for me, David Alt, to wish you goodbye. Goodbye. Here at the Jodcast, we love to hear your comments and feedback. So please, fill in the forms at www.jodcast.net and let us know what you think. If you have any suggestions or comments, let us know. And also, if you're a composer, or if you have a band or something, we're still looking for a Jodcast theme tune. So please, if you have any ideas for that as well, then let us know. So look out for us at the beginning of next month, when we do all sorts of fantastic things. Won't we, Jerry? Yeah, we're going to completely rewrite the astronomy books. Quality. Cheers. <laughs>